This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 98th episode of the program. Today is June 9th, and before we jump into the issues, I want to take a moment to thank these individuals for deciding to support us either through Patreon or PayPal. So today we have Alfred Epting, Catherine Sificatus, Dame Frame, Darius Serafi, David Dyer, Dean Fleming, Derek Burenin, Dylan Duran, Fabian J. Lilo, Harmony, Intricate Knot, Jamaica Street, Jared Rogers, Jeff Redman, John DeCanto, John DiDominici, Joshua Willis, Christy Rainey, Laura Smith, Melissa Rogers, Mole, Nicholas Rodriguez, Raymond Foley, and Zachary Osborne. So thank you so much to all of these individuals. If you'd like to also support the show, you can visit patreon.com forward slash The Humanist Report. So on today's episode, first of all, I'm going to talk about the day of action to save net neutrality, as well as how the FCC security reportedly assaulted a reporter, and it's a story that's actually relatively old, but nobody's talking about it. I'll also talk about how the cultural shift on single-payer healthcare was catalyzed by Bernie Sanders, the White House's defense of Trump's decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, Republican Karen Handel's Freudian slip, Comey's testimony, and the GOP's plan to rush Trump care through the Senate. I'll also talk about how Debbie Wasserman Schultz's office was busted when they tried to get information from the attorneys in the DNC fraud lawsuit. And I'll also give you updates about spineless Democratic congressmen who refused to co-sponsor H.R. 676, which is the Medicare for All bill. And finally, I'll be speaking with 2018 congressional candidates Cory Bush and Paula Swearingen. So all of these topics will be discussed on today's episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Enjoy. On last week's episode, I talked about how Netflix, who is a behemoth of a company that was once a really strong ally in the fight to protect net neutrality, decided that this time around they're going to back down from the fight against net neutrality because they're big enough to where it just doesn't concern them now. And that's disappointing because Netflix has a lot of legitimacy. And if they say that we should protect net neutrality, then people are going to be inclined to listen to them because there's a lot of people that like their service, and rightfully so. Netflix is awesome. I think many of us have Netflix subscriptions. So it's important for Netflix to get involved because they're able to galvanize public support in favor of net neutrality. But even though it's disappointing that they're not participating this time around in the fight to save the internet, there are other companies that have decided to step up to fill the void left by Netflix. So on July 12th, there will be an internet-wide day of action to save net neutrality, which is organized by fightforthefuture.org. So they explain that on July 12th, websites, internet users, and online communities will come together to sound the alarm about the FCC's attack on net neutrality. We'll provide tools for everyone to make it super easy for your followers slash visitors to take action. From the SOPA blackout to the internet slowdown, we've shown time and time again that when the internet comes together, we can stop censorship and corruption. Now we have to do it again. And they go on to explain that net neutrality is important because the internet has thrived precisely because of net neutrality. It's what makes it so vibrant and innovative, a place for creativity, free expression, and exchange of ideas. Without net neutrality, the internet will become more like cable TV, where the content you see is what your provider puts in front of you. Now, the companies participating include... Amazon, Etsy, Kickstarter, Mozilla, 
Vimeo, GitHub, Reddit, the ACLU, BitTorrent, Chess.com, DuckDuckGo, Greenpeace, Imager, MoveOn, The Nation, and Patreon, among others. So, we might have lost Netflix, but we've just gained a whole new slew of gigantic allies, and this is something that makes me incredibly happy and a little bit more optimistic about the internet's future. So according to The Guardian, Evan Greer, campaign director of Fight for the Future, said the internet has given more people a voice than ever before, and we're not going to let the FCC take that power away from us. Massive online mobilization got us the strong net neutrality protections that we have now, and we intend to fight tooth and nail to defend them. Michael Che, general counsel of Vimeo, said net neutrality made it possible for Vimeo, along with countless other startups to innovate and thrive. The FCC's proposed rollback of the 2015 Open Internet Rules threatens to impede that innovation and allow a handful of incumbent ISPs to determine winners and losers. Global tech companies, including Google, Netflix, and Twitter, joined a similar day of protest in 2014, helped push the FCC to reclassify broadband under Title II of the Telecommunications Act, a move that banned internet service providers from creating fast lanes or slow lanes for services, a situation that critics argue would allow them to pick winners and losers. So we have a ton of huge allies that are going to fight with us to preserve net neutrality. And that, to me, is very exciting. But I haven't even gotten to the biggest ally that we have and that we certainly need. It's you. These companies can only do so much, but unless millions of people rise up to respond to the FCC, these companies will not make a difference. So here's what you can do. You can go to battleforthenet.com and sign up to join the protest. And we don't have much details about the specifics of the protest yet, whether or not we're going to be marching or we're going to be doing a protest through the internet by blacking out our profiles or something. But Regardless, go there and sign up, and they will contact you about the day of action, and it's incredibly important. This right now should be our priority. This is not just about the internet. This is about democracy. The internet has become so crucial to democracy that if we lose it in this day and age, then we lose democracy. Let's just face it. That's not hyperbolic. We lose democracy because we no longer can get independent news information from the internet we're forced to rely on the mainstream media and comcast who's the parent company of mainstream media outlets like msnbc well what do you think they're going to do to all their customers they're going to make sure that the smaller independent websites that you get your news from that you get independent objective analyses from aren't going to be able to compete with the likes of msnbc so this is a fight for democracy. This isn't just about the internet. So if we save the internet, we can save democracy. So this takes all of us rising up and not being complacent because if there's ever a time that we needed to come together and fight, it's right now. This is a fight that concerns conservatives, liberals, progressives, and everyone on the political spectrum. So unless you're wearing a suit and tie and you work at the head of one of these companies like Verizon, AT&T. You will be harmed by the lack of net neutrality. So let's all come together. Let's fight and let's save the internet once and for all. We recently learned that when some Republicans don't like being asked questions, not even tough questions, just when they don't like being asked questions, generally speaking, they're willing to assault reporters. Now, apparently, this isn't a new phenomenon for Republicans because in what is probably the most severely underrepresented story 
of the year so far, apparently there was an assault that took place at the behest of the FCC. So apparently FCC security goons assaulted a reporter that dared to ask a question. So in a statement released by the National Press Club, they explained what allegedly happened to CQ roll calls John M. Donnelly during a public hearing. Security guards at the Federal Communications Commission headquarters here manhandled a well-regarded reporter at a public hearing today and forced him to leave the premises after he tried to politely ask questions of FCC commissioners. Throughout the FCC meeting, the security guards had shadowed Donnelly as if he were a security threat, he said. Even though he continuously displayed his congressional press pass and held a tape recorder and notepad, they even waited for him outside the men's room at one point. When Donnelly strolled in an unthreatening way toward FCC Commissioner Michael O'Reilly to pose a question, two guards pinned Donnelly against the wall with the backs of their bodies until O'Reilly had passed. O'Reilly witnessed this and continued walking. So... You have a situation kind of like the Greg Gianforte situation in Montana where a reporter posed a question and they claimed he was being threatening uh, and he appeared threatening, but then they proceeded to assault them. So who's the real threat here? A reporter asking questions or Republican thugs or the FCC security goons who are manhandling reporters? Now, this was on May 18th. Let me remind you, this was on May 18th. How many people have heard about this story? See, the mainstream media... Covered the Greg Gianforte body slamming story up and down, but when it comes to this story, they wouldn't touch it because that's getting a little bit close to net neutrality. And their parent companies, for example, don't want them to even mention the words net neutrality. Which is why, you know, outlets like MSNBC aren't obsessing over this story like they did about the Greg Gianforte story. Hence why many of us haven't even heard about it. Now, after this incident occurred, the FCC actually apologized to Donnelly. When contacted by ours today, an FCC spokesperson said, We apologize to Mr. Donnelly more than once and let him know that the FCC was on heightened alert today based on several threats. I don't have any further comment. But now, more than 20 days later, after they chose to apologize, they're now denying that the incident even occurred, so according to Ars Technica, Federal Communications Commission security officers have adamantly denied an allegation that they pinned a journalist against the wall, according to FCC Chairman Ajit Pai. The reporter, who made the allegation, stood by his account when contacted by Ars Today. Pai sent a letter last week to two Democratic senators who asked Pai to explain why FCC security personnel reportedly manhandled, threatened further physical violence, and ejected a respected Washington journalist after a news conference at the FCC headquarters. While Pai acknowledged that FCC security made some mistakes in the incident, he told senators that interviews with security guards and witnesses did not corroborate all of the allegations made by CQ roll call reporter John Donnelly. So one, they're claiming to be the victims because there were threats made, they refused to tell us about the nature of the threats, and we know that the FCC likes to play the victim because after John Oliver did a segment and told everyone to call the FCC, uh, they claimed to be the victims and said that they were attacked by that. And now, since Ajit Pai is saying that it didn't happen, and since he's a serial liar, I'm now more inclined to believe that it did certainly happen because Ajit Pai has zero credibility. He lies about any and everything he can to make the FCC and his agenda uh, look better, but it doesn't. He continues to lie now by claiming that his decision to gut net neutrality will facilitate a free and open internet, but that's just a bold-faced 
lie, and it's a lie parroted by the broadband industry, who we now know supplies talking points directly to Republican lawmakers and Republican bureaucrats. So nobody's going to believe you, Ajit Pai, because you've chosen to lie about everything. So why would we believe you now after the FCC tacitly admitted guilt by apologizing multiple times to John Donnelly? So you apologize, then you say, well, it didn't actually happen. Not everything he said is true. Look, I want to recount what John Donnelly says here in a statement. He claims, Pai's denial that I was pinned against the wall is also wrong. I could not move for several seconds as they leaned into me. So there's no question. I believe this journalist. I absolutely believe this journalist because Ajit Pai, one, is a liar and he's tried to play the victim, two, multiple times. And the most frustrating aspect about this story is that there is a dearth of coverage when it comes to this story. Very few journalists in the country are willing to actually talk about net neutrality with the exception of tech blogs and tech news agencies like Ars Technica and The Verge. And that's really disheartening to me. So when you see a journalist who's actually doing his or her job and is trying to talk about net neutrality, trying to ask questions and hold very powerful people like Michael O'Reilly and Ajit Pai accountable by simply asking them a question, then they get assaulted. So I absolutely believe John Donnelly. You should too. Nobody believes Ajit Pai because Ajit Pai has shown time and again that he is one of the biggest liars in the country. In fact, he may be a bigger liar than Trump, and he's more of a problem than Trump because Trump, you know, it's pretty easy to discern whether or not he's lying. With Ajit Pai, he says it with a really straight face, and he's more articulate and eloquent when he speaks, so people may actually be misled by him, and that's a problem. So this assault is not, it's, it's not acceptable. It's not okay. And so the FCC... They need to train their goons to allow the FCC's, uh, anyone who's trying to challenge the FCC or at least ask a question, to not manhandle reporters. I mean, why are we even having this discussion in a democracy? This isn't Egypt. This isn't an authoritarian regime where we assault reporters and jail reporters. So why are we treating reporters this badly? One of the few reporters, anyway, who wants to actually get to the bottom of this issue and talk about net neutrality. It's, it's unacceptable to me. As you all know, there's currently a special election taking place in Georgia's 6th Congressional District between Republican candidate Karen Handel and Democratic contender John Ossoff. Now, I will be the first person to say that there's really nothing special about John Ossoff. I do like the fact that he's a millennial, and I think we need more millennial representation in Congress, at least descriptively. However... When you look at his policies, he's just another incrementalist. So he doesn't support single-payer health care. And I don't think he has very innovative policy positions. But with that being said, his Republican opponent is bloody awful. I mean, she's just the worst of the worst. And the positions that she takes effectively make her a pro-poverty and pro-exploitation candidate. And this was demonstrated during a debate between the two. Case in point. Does either candidate support a minimum wage increase? Mr. Ossoff starts with you. Yes, I do. The minimum wage uh, should be a living wage. I think we can uh, raise it indexed to the cost of living because the cost of living varies widely in urban and rural areas and in different states across this country. I think that increase needs to be implemented at a pace that allows business owners uh, to adapt their business plans so they're not shocked. Their business plans are not shocked by a sudden increase in labor costs. But look, if someone's working a 40-hour work week, uh, they deserve the kind of standard of living that Americans expect. That's part of the American dream, and there are too many folks who are having trouble making ends meet. 
Minimum wage. This is an example of the fundamental difference between a liberal and a conservative. I do not support a livable wage. I do not support a livable wage. What the hell did you just say? I do not support a livable wage. What I support is making sure that we have an economy that is is robust with low taxes and less regulation so that those small businesses that would be dramatically hurt if you impose higher minimum wages on them are able to do what they do best, grow jobs and create good paying jobs for the people in the 6th District. Wow. <laughs> so that is a Freudian slip if I've ever seen one. Uh, because everything that John Ossoff said right there is completely reasonable, but nonetheless, she states, this is an example of the fundamental difference between a liberal con and a conservative. I do not support a livable wage. Wow, Karen. Thank you for saying exactly how the Republicans really feel, because this isn't too surprising, but I mean, to hear the words come out of your mouth, I mean... Kudos to you. That takes a lot of guts to say something that awful and still continue to run, not just drop out due to shame. So she's effectively arguing for indentured servitude because she wants to grow jobs by not stifling growth, by forcing businesses to pay workers a living wage. So, I mean, in her eyes, if people are working 40 hours per week and aren't able to afford the basic necessities, she's perfectly fine with that so long as they have a job. So, a job is more important than people actually being able to make a living from said job. Right, except that's not an acceptable position because the reason why people have jobs in the first place is so that way they can make a living. A job isn't something that's just intrinsic in and of itself. There's real instrumental value in having a job. You have a job because you want to make money to feed and clothe yourself. So the fact that more people has, has jobs means absolutely nothing if people are being exploited and they don't have enough money to pay their rent. So think about what you're saying just for a minute and you'll realize just how idiotic a statement that really is. I do not support a livable wage, 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 There just has to be an excuse, right? Is she going to contend that she was taken out of context or that she misspoke? Well, actually, she's not really backing down from her position. So she tells WSB-TV, I was talking about the mandate. My opponent believes that having more federal government mandates is what will grow salaries. What I believe is the solution for all working Georgians to be able to earn a better salary. I really believe that the solution to helping ensure that all hardworking Georgians can make a good salary is not through mandates. My opponent believes that government should mandate and dictate. Well, that's nice that you believe that the debunked theory known as trickle-down economics is what will increase our salaries and that, you know, a rising tide will lift all boats. But that's a theory that's demonstrably false and it completely ignores the fact that companies, they want to make money. They don't care about the workers, but according to Karen here, so long as there's just less regulations on businesses, then that's all that matters. And, you know, these businesses are going to be so kind to workers. It's not like these companies are doing everything in their power to stifle any types of unionization. It's not like they're already fighting against paying their workers a living wage. No, these, these companies are altruistic. They actually care about their worker. No, that's bullshit, and nobody who actually works a minimum wage job believes that. So Karen here is 
really, she's the perfect representation of the modern Republican Party. Uh, they're in favor of exploiting the working class at the behest of the bourgeoisie. But when it comes to Karen Handel, that's not all. She's also against same-sex marriage and adoption for same-sex couples. She also wants to ban abortion and defund Planned Parenthood. She's against stem cell research. Wow, stay classy there, Karen. And she also wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act. And now we know where she stands on a living wage. She is against it, unequivocally. Wow. <laughs> what a stand-up individual you are. You are unequivocally against a living wage. So that way big businesses are able to exploit their workers, make more money, and then donate to your campaign. Honestly, I mean, I I'm glad that she said this. She represents her party perfectly. Good job, Karen. Thank you for telling us how Republicans really feel when it comes to us peasants. I hope you lose. There's an ongoing DNC fraud lawsuit going on, and even though I don't have an update for you when it comes to the details of the case, there is an odd story stemming from the DNC fraud lawsuit itself when it comes to the most infamous defendant in the case, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. So, the Ring of Fire reports, just before 5pm on Thursday, Elizabeth Liebeck's office received a mysterious phone call. A caller with a voice that sounded robotic and genderless, along the lines of the voice changers used when television show interviews are kept anonymous, asked the secretary for details in the DNC fraud lawsuit. Beck's office is the law firm bringing the suit against the DNC for their fraudulent practices during the 2016 primaries. The secretary provided the caller with publicly available information about the case, and the caller ended the call with okie dokie. The caller obviously went to great lengths to conceal their identity when probing for information about the case. However, a small detail was missed. Caller ID. The call came in from 305-936-5724. With a little internet sleuthing, like a simple Google search, it was revealed that the number comes from Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz's Aventura, Florida office. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, you played yourself. Debbie. <laughs> was that you, Debbie? I need to know if that was Debbie. Now, we don't have any evidence that that was Debbie herself, but certainly it was someone from her office. And please, please, please let that be Debbie. I, if that's Debbie, then I would be so excited. I want it to be true. I want to believe. But we don't have evidence. But wow, what a weird story. What a weird thing to do. Um, now... <laughs> When you look at the number that appeared on the caller ID, you know, sure enough, it's the office of Congresswoman and disgraced DNC chairwoman, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. So they were busted fishing for information about the DNC fraud lawsuit. Now, before we, you know, get any further with the discussion, I want to credit Nico House, who is the individual that broke this story initially. Um, but the, that's such a weird thing to do. That's a really, really weird thing to do because... You know, at the first hearing, you already kind of got some insight into the argument that Jared Beck would be putting forward to prove that the DNC did, in fact, commit fraud. So I, I, I can't possibly begin to figure out what they would want to know that they don't already know. I mean, there's a wealth of evidence to show that the DNC defrauded Bernie Sanders supporters by tipping the scales against him and his supporters. So I don't, I don't know what they would look for that's not already out there. But it's interesting to me. And it tells me one thing. It tells me that they are paying attention to the DNC fraud lawsuit because, you know, up until this point, their policy has been to completely just ignore its existence. But they're aware of it. And 
they're only going to be able to ignore the DNC fraud lawsuit for so long until people like Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Tom Perez, Donna Brazil, they're all subpoenaed and are forced to show up in court if it does in fact move forward and it's not dismiss, dismissed. So um, I don't even know what to say about this. This is a story that's just so bizarre and odd. If you're going to use a voice changer, how could you forget the most important detail to block your caller ID? You're so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. Now, again, we don't know if it's Debbie Wasserman Schultz that made this call. I really, really want it to be Debbie Wasserman Schultz because that would just be hilarious to me. But most likely it was an intern that called, you know, at, upon the orders of Debbie Wasserman Schultz. So... This is just such a weird story. I keep saying that, but it's it's unbelievable to me. Uh, do I believe Jared Beck and Elizabeth Beck? Absolutely. They they provided us with evidence. They took a picture of the phone and caller ID linking, you know, the number to W. Wasserman Schultz's office. So, of course, I believe them. And it's not something that is unbelievable, even if we didn't have evidence, because W. Wasserman Schultz is... She's not just a weird person, but she's relatively strange in terms of the things that she'll do and say to push her own agenda. So when it comes to, you know, the whole infamous chair-throwing incident that she lied about on national television, that was just a strange phenomenon as well. There was no video evidence that there were chairs that were being thrown, and the only piece of evidence that we see where someone picked up a chair completely debunks her theory. So Debbie Wasserman Schultz, she's just this weird, irrational person that does things that hurt herself when she doesn't even realize it, and then she turns around and plays the victim, and is saying, why is everybody, you know, looking at me? I did nothing wrong. No, Debbie, you continue to mess up. You continue to do wrong things and bad things that hurt the party and hurt, you know, uh, everyone in the country, because if you hurt people like Bernie Sanders, then you hurt everyone in the country. You're part of the reason why we got Donald Trump as president, Debbie, so, I mean, I don't get why she just keeps doing things like this, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, I'm glad that they at least acknowledge the existence of the DNC fraud lawsuit. They can't continue to sweep it under the rug. Uh, they know it's there, and they know they want information about it. So, And we know they want information about it, that is. So, you know, <laughs> weird story. I don't know what to tell you. We are currently in an age where whistleblowers and leakers are punished with the full extent of the law while government officials are able to commit crimes and violate the laws and get away with it. So now, we have a young woman named Reality Winner who decided to leak a classified assessment by the NSA to The Intercept, and almost immediately after the story broke, she was arrested, and as a result, her life may now be ruined for the coming years because of it. And it's very clear that Trump's administration, as well as Jeff Sessions' Justice Department, will try to make an example out of Reality Winner. She's a good girl. She's mm -hmm. a good person. She's never been in trouble with anyone mm -hmm. or the law or anything. She always does what's right. She served her country. She was in the Air Force for six mm -hmm. years. Yeah. Um, she, she is a good person. She volunteers. She does whatever she can to make the community and the world better. She actually called her dad because mm -hmm. he's the, the calm one. So he, she just let him know that she was in trouble, mm -hmm. that she was being arrested and or she had been arrested and um, and then um, she just asked if we could come on up and take care of her animals. I'm worried about her. Yeah. That's my main. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I understand. So to me, this story is heartbreaking because I'm someone who's consistent. I support whistleblowers. I support leakers. And I can't understand why what she leaked wasn't already declassified because it wasn't really that big of a bombshell in actuality. So what she leaked, according to The Intercept, 
is a document that demonstrates how the NSA assessed that, quote, Russian military intelligence executed a cyber attack on at least one U.S. voting software supplier and sent spear phishing emails to more than 100 local election officials just days before last November's presidential election, according to a highly classified intelligence report obtained by The Intercept. The report, dated May 5th, 2017, is the most detailed U.S. government account of Russian interference in the election that has yet come to light. While the document provides a rare window into the NSA's understanding of the mechanics of Russian hacking, it does not show the underlying raw intelligence on which the analysis is based. A U.S. intelligence officer who declined to be identified cautioned against drawing too big a conclusion from the document because a single analysis is not necessarily definitive. Now, even though the article itself states that unequivocally that you can't draw too big of a conclusion from this, the mainstream media took this story and sensationalized it like you'd never believe. Now, what she revealed, again, this is an assessment from the NSA. We can't see the raw data. And furthermore, we don't know the extent to which Russians were successful in hacking a third-party voting supplier. So this doesn't mean that they've hacked into voting booths. Nonetheless, this will help to bolster that narrative that Russia did, in fact, hack the election, regardless if the report doesn't even actually say that. And overall, there's a lot of confusion that I'm seeing about this report, and it's being touted as the first piece of evidence that the American people are able to actually see that lends credence to the claim that Russia hacked the election. But that's that's not necessarily true. This doesn't give us evidence that Russia hacked the election. This gives us details of an assessment by the NSA that they tried to hack into a voting supplier to get information about voting data. The report does not confirm that Russia, quote, hacked the election or tampered with voting booths in any way. But this does provide us with an analysis as to how Russia was at least interested in American voter data. Nonetheless, there are some people that are touting this as the smoking gun, and I would advise those individuals to be cautious because, again, claiming Russia hacked the election is a serious claim, and this report doesn't actually reveal that. And if you claim Russia hacked the elections, I mean, that is a claim that has serious consequences. But I think it'd be really helpful to disaggregate the Russian story because at this point, there's been so many sweeping claims. It's gotten so big, so complex and convoluted that I don't think many people really even know what's going on. So first of all, one component of this Russia story is that it's alleged that Russia hacked into the DNC and John Podesta's emails. And up until this point, that's what has been referred to as an election hacking. So we were led to believe that hacking into emails allegedly is tantamount to election meddling, when I don't think that's persuasive at all. Now, second of all, there's the connection between people within Trump's administration, like Jared Kushner and Mike Flynn, to Russian diplomats, but this still doesn't show Russia hacked the election. What it does do, however, is give us insight into how people within Trump's administration may have corrupt business dealings with Russian oligarchs, and that's problematic in its own right, but it doesn't relate to election meddling or election hacking. And I think that we'd find connections between people within Trump's administration and oligarchs of other countries like Saudi Arabia if we simply just look for it because they're obviously corrupt. So, I mean, if you really zero in on Qatar, for example, I think you would find 
back channels for communication between Trump's administration and Qatari oligarchs. Because again, this is an administration that is brazenly corrupt. They've demonstrated that time and again. But moving on, there is a third component. There's concern about a Russian propaganda campaign launched during the campaign, and this is obviously problematic, but Americans are also bombarded with other types of propaganda campaigns, such as pro-corporate and partisan propaganda campaigns. And I actually think that those domestic propaganda efforts are way more problematic than foreign propaganda campaigns because the link between Russia's alleged pro-Trump propaganda campaign and the impact that that actually had on voters is tenuous. Now, fourth, there's the question as to whether or not Trump colluded with Russians on any of the aforesaid actions, but there's zero evidence for that at this point as well. Now, fifth and finally, we have a new component with the leaking of Reality Winner's document about how they launched a spear phishing campaign to obtain information about voters. So, getting back to what Reality Winner leaked, I think that the information that she revealed is so banal and honestly just so unsurprising that you could use it to justify either argument. So if you're in favor of the Russiagate conspiracy, you can say, well, look, this is evidence that Russia was in fact interested in hacking into American voter systems and that may in fact justify them wanting to hack into voting booths as well. So maybe we should look into that. So that's, that's one way you can argue. But on the other hand, you can argue and say, well, the thing about what reality winner leaked, it wasn't that surprising. And after the Snowden revelations, we know that countries hack each other all the time. They hack into voter data all the time. And in fact, WikiLeaks reports that the United States and the UK successfully stole voter data from Pakistan. But we still don't even know whether or not Russia was successful at stealing voter data from the United States. So in the end, this isn't a phenomenon that's surprising to anyone that's been paying attention, which makes it all the more outrageous that Reality Winner would be arrested for it. Because I think that what she did was, it was brave. It was an act of bravery. She decided to release information that she felt was in the public's best interest. And what she released wasn't that big of a deal, but yet her life may be ruined as a result. And I find that just incredibly egregious because again this is not really surprising these are the games that russia and america plays all the time now does that make it less problematic no it doesn't i don't want russia hacking into our voter data but i also don't want the united states hacking hacking into russia or pakistani voter data i think that all countries need to make sure that they don't interfere in other countries but I'm still confused about all of this, and I'll tell you why. So, Senator Mark Warner claims that the alleged Russian hacking was much broader than has been reported so far. So, the public was forced to believe that emails were tantamount to an election hack, but they're telling us that there's more classified evidence that we can't see. So, theoretically, if we had access to this information, we would take their position too, and we would be pushing this Russiagate conspiracy as fervently as they are. But here's why I don't find that argument persuasive at all. It's because of what they've chosen to do with this information. So if senators and congressmen and women and some of the biggest pushers of Russiagate, like Mark Warner and Maxine Waters, for example, are concerned with election integrity, and they actually have access to information that we don't have, which is why they're so uh, in favor of pushing this conspiracy, then you would think that they would be more concerned with doing things to make sure this doesn't happen again. But what they're doing with that information that they apparently have is they're pushing the story as a means of attacking Trump exclusively. 
I'm calling for yeah. the impeachment of this president, and I want the facts to come out uh, to confirm mm -hmm. that they colluded uh, with the Kremlin and with Putin. Now, the reason why I say this is because if I were a senator and I was briefed on information about how Russia allegedly hacked into American systems, like they apparently have, again, they, they have this information that we don't have. So if I was in their position and I was briefed as to how Russia tried to influence the American election, here's what I would do if I'm a senator. I certainly wouldn't care about talking about impeaching Donald Trump. I would immediately sponsor a bill the very next day that would ensure that we move to paper ballots so that way a foreign government can't interfere with our voting booths. And furthermore, I would include in that bill an amendment to increase cybersecurity so Russia or other foreign countries can't hack into American voter data systems. That's what I would do, but instead, what they're doing is not that. So, like, when it comes to Elizabeth Warren, for example, she said that the reason why she thinks we should focus on Russia is so that way, you know, foreign interference in our election never, ever happens again. That was her quote. But, I mean... Attacking Donald Trump isn't really a way to ensure that this never happens again and understand that a huge portion of this Russia story hinges on whether or not Donald Trump colluded with Russia or not. My immediate response wouldn't be to try to impeach Donald Trump because they helped him win. My response would be to make sure that foreign interference doesn't happen again, but that's not what they're doing, which is why I'm led to believe that Democrats are just being political opportunists right now because I don't feel as though they care about election hacking. I feel as though they care about attacking Donald Trump, which is why they try to take the biggest aspect of the story, collusion, uh, and they try to they try to bet that, you know, if we could find evidence that Donald Trump colluded with the Russians, then that's problematic. But I mean, if, if we find evidence that Donald Trump tried to collude with Vladimir Putin or the Russians in any way, shape, or form to interfere with the election, I care about making sure that foreign interferers can't do that again. But that's not what they're showing us. So that's why I have such a hard time getting on board with this Russia Gate story. It's because it doesn't make sense. There's so many portions of it that doesn't add up. My question is how many Russia Gate pushers have actually called for the US to move to paper ballots? I can't think of any. And this is why I think it's reasonable to assume that Democrats don't really care about election integrity. They care about exploiting this story to attack Donald Trump. And we know that they don't care about election integrity because the pushers of this story have been completely silent about how the DNC rigged primaries in favor of Hillary Clinton. I mean, Elizabeth Warren had the audacity to say that she was proud of the Democratic primary, so they often call out Republican voter suppression. Meanwhile, they're silent on the DNC tipping the scales in favor of Hillary. They're silent on closed primaries in Democratic uh, elections, which is a form of voter suppression. So they don't care about election integrity because, again, if they did, they would put forward legislation to prevent Russia from hacking into our systems. Now, with that being said, I do support an independent investigation because I said it once. I, I probably said it a hundred times. I'll say it again. I, I'm always in favor of more information and not less. And since there's so many corrupt business deals between people within Trump's administration and whatnot, I think that it would be beneficial for all of us to see what, what they find with an independent investigation. And if you are against the Russia Gate conspiracy like I am, I think you should also support an independent investigation because an investigation, you know, regardless of what it concludes, this would put an end to the Russia conspiracy, kind of like the Benghazi investigation put an end to that conspiracy. So I think it's important for us to 
close this book and move on and an independent investigation would certainly facilitate that but the real story in spite of what you take away from this leak isn't about russia it's not about democrats it's about reality winner she decided to be brave enough to release information she wanted the american people to see and regardless if you're on board with the russian hysteria or not what she did must be protected this is why even julian assange voiced unequivocal support for her bravery saying that she must be supported and that she's a young woman accused of courage in trying to help us know. And again, I can't understand why the information that she released wasn't already declassified, because if they really want Americans to get on board with the Russia Gate story, give us the information, declassify the evidence, but they don't want to do that. So what she did was something that was not that consequential in the grand scheme of things, but yet her life may be ruined as a result. And the saddest part of the story is that her arrest could have been avoided. So according to the Chicago Tribune, because the NSA logs all printing jobs on its printers, it can use this to match up precisely who printed the document, observes cybersecurity expert Rob Graham of Errata Security. If that's so, it's a case of what John LeCar would label poor tradecraft, an inadvertent exposure of your own source. It's also a reminder that documents produced or reproduced digitally often carry concealed fingerprints that can reveal to trained examiners a lot more than one might think. And now that it is very clear that the Justice Department is pursuing a case against Reality Winner, The Intercept, who broke the story, released this statement. On June 5th, The Intercept published a story about a top-secret NSA document that was provided to us completely anonymously. Shortly after the article was posted, the Justice Department announced the arrest of Reality Lee Winner, a 25-year-old government contractor in Augusta, Georgia, for transmitting defense information under the Espionage Act. Although we have no knowledge of the identity of the person who provided us with the document, the U.S. government has told news organizations that Winner was that individual. While the FBI's allegations against Winner have been made public through the release of an affidavit and search warrant which were unsealed at the government's request, it is important to keep in mind that these documents contain unproven assertions and speculation designed to serve the government's agenda and as such warrant skepticism. Winner faces allegations that have not been proven. The same is true of the FBI's claim about how it came to arrest Winner. So Donald Trump's administration will try to make an example out of her, even though The Intercept, who published what she released, says, you know, <laughs> what she released should still warrant skepticism. It was an analysis. And that's exactly it. To the people who are going to use what she released for your own agenda on both sides of the case, uh, I think that's wrong. Because what she released is something that just shows that Russia tried to hack a third-party voter data supplier. It does not show that Russia tried to hack into voting booths. And if you push that narrative, I think that you're being really harmful because you are inadvertently encouraging the U.S. government to escalate tensions between the United States and Russia. And with how decentralized our voting system really is, it's incredibly difficult to prove election meddling. It really is. So if you jump to conclusions, that can be dangerous. And I'm not a Russian apologist. And to the people who say, how much is Putin paying you? Uh, you're, you're helping prove my point that neo-McCarthyism is hurting the country. It's diminishing political discourse in this country. So my position on this issue is not static. It's dynamic. If information comes forward, if evidence comes forward that shows that Russia tried to hack into voting booths, then I will get on board with this story, although it won't be the only thing that I focus on, of course. But that's not what this reveals. This reveals something that isn't that surprising if you actually followed Snowden's leaks. 
Governments do this to each other all the time. So let's do an independent investigation and then move on to the actual issues. But, it, you know, in the end, I, I'm just heartbroken for Reality Winner and her family because she doesn't deserve this. And what she released, again, it doesn't warrant this. It's not that big of a deal to where it warrants her life being ruined by Donald Trump's administration, who's just trying to make an example out of leakers. So it's really a heartbreaking story to me. And I really hope that Reality Winner uh, is able to get out of this better than what it's looking like now because I'm really feeling discouraged about the prospects of her freedom right now. So this week, the biggest thing on most people's minds was James Comey's testimony because his testimony is something that many believe would give us evidence into whether or not Donald Trump did in fact try to obstruct justice when it comes to the investigation into Michael Flynn. Now, unfortunately for many liberals and Democrats, they got a little bit more than they bargained for because this wasn't just a testimony where we discussed Donald Trump's potential attempt to obstruct justice, but we learned from James Comey that a very powerful individual on the left also tried to obstruct justice. So we'll get to that, but first, when it comes to whether or not Donald Trump tried to obstruct justice, this is what James Comey had to say. You know of any case where a person has been charged for obstruction of justice, or for that matter, any other criminal offense where this they said or thought they hoped for an outcome? I don't know well enough to answer. And the reason I keep saying his words is, I took it as a direction. Right. But, I mean, this is the President of the United States, with me alone, saying, I hope this. I took it as, this is what he wants he, me to do. Now, you, I, didn't, I didn't obey that, but that's the way I took it. You may have taken it as a direction, but that's not what he said. Correct. I, that's he, what I said, said. he said, I hope. Those are exact words, okay. correct. You, you don't know of anyone that's ever been charged for hoping something. Is that a fair statement? I don't, as I sit here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So make no mistake about it, Trump didn't specifically tell Comey that the investigation would have to turn out in a certain way. So if you look at it from that angle, then sure, you can make the case that he didn't obstruct justice. But when you really put the conversation in context, I think it's reasonable to assume that, yeah, what he did was an attempt to influence James Comey. I mean, they were alone. He told him he really hopes that, you know, the investigation goes one way or the other. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. And that is, that, that is a brazen attempt, in my opinion, to influence the outcome of an investigation. And certainly any reasonable person in James Comey's position would agree that, yeah, actually, um, if you tell me when we're alone that you hope it turns out a certain way... That's a direction. But ultimately, when it comes to the question as to whether or not Trump did in fact obstruct justice, I think that Comey's testimony can potentially justify arguments from Republicans and Democrats. So Republicans will argue that the extent of Trump's influence was him simply expressing hope about the outcome of Comey's investigation. But on the other hand, Democrats will claim that simply discussing the investigation with James Comey in the first place was unethical. And the fact that you know, Comey seemed to think that Trump was issuing him a directive. I think that's grounds for us to believe that Trump did try to influence the outcome of the investigation and obstruct justice. But again, when you put the conversation that they had in context, well, it really does seem as though Donald Trump was trying to influence James Comey in one way or the other. And if he's trying to influence James Comey, then yes, that is an obstruction of justice. And I do find that argument more persuasive. Now, as New York Daily News argues, the import of 
former FBI Director James Comey's statement released in advance of his Senate testimony when considered with all of the surrounding evidence is clear. Our president is guilty of obstruction of justice for endeavoring to obstruct an FBI investigation. Comey's advanced statement reveals that on February 14th, he was in a meeting with President Trump, Vice President Pence, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and others. At the conclusion of the meeting, the president asked everyone to leave except for Comey, with no one else present. President Trump asked Comey to drop the FBI investigation into former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Specifically, the president said Flynn hadn't done anything wrong on his calls with the Russians, but had misled the vice president and said, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go, to letting Flynn go. He's a good guy. I hope you can let this go. Yeah, to me, that just sounds incredibly damaging to Donald Trump. Um, so the thing about this is if we really do conclude that Donald Trump did try to obstruct justice and Democrats proceed with impeachment proceedings, then Democrats shouldn't just automatically rejoice because then we'd be stuck with Mike Pence, who's exponentially more dangerous than Donald Trump. So, I mean, there's really no way for the American people to win here. So, yeah, I think that it's reasonable for us to believe, or certainly you can make the case that Donald Trump did, in fact, obstruct justice. That's how I would see it if I was in Comey's position. Um, and I think that that's how reasonable, objective people would agree with the situation. However, we'll see how consistent people are when it comes to obstruction of justice. Um, because apparently during the same testimony, James Comey made it very clear that someone on the left, Attorney General Loretta Lynch, also may be guilty of obstructing justice. Here's what he had to say about that. Was your decision influenced by the Attorney General's tarmac meeting with the former President Bill Clinton? Yes, in, in a ultimately a conclusive way. That was the thing that kept it for me, that I had to do something separately to protect the credibility of the investigation, which meant both the FBI and the Justice Department. Were there other things that contributed to that that you can describe in an open session? There were other things that contributed to that. Uh, one significant item I can't, I know the committee's been briefed on, there's been some public accounts of it which are nonsense, but I understand the committee's been briefed on the classified facts. Probably the only other consideration that I guess I can talk about in an open setting is that at one point the Attorney General had directed me not to call it an investigation, but instead to call it a matter, which confused me and concerned me. But that was one of the bricks in the load that led me to conclude I have to step away from the department if we're to close this case credibly. Yikes. Now... During the hearing, he also went on to talk about how, quote, Loretta Lynch had the appearance of a conflict of interest. So, not only did we find out that Donald Trump probably tried to obstruct justice, but that Loretta Lynch also probably tried to obstruct justice as well. Now, you can tell who the hypocrites are and who the hip hypocrites aren't by looking at both of these instances of potential obstructions of justice and seeing whether or not you find both of them persuasive. For, because for me, I think that James Comey's testimony is evidence that both Loretta Lynch and Donald Trump obstructed justice, or certainly tried to. Um, but if you're on the left and you think that Donald Trump obstructed justice, but Loretta Lynch didn't, you're a hypocrite. And if you're on the right, but you think that Loretta Lynch obstructed justice, but Donald Trump didn't, again, you're a hypocrite. So we'll find out who the true hypocrites are and who the people that can actually be objective are. I think that this is damaging to both Loretta Lynch, Bill Clinton, and Donald Trump. And what this story really tells us, the main takeaway, in my opinion, is that 
elites on both sides of the political spectrum, you know, the rich and the powerful are clearly using their influence to try to persuade the FBI director to conclude investigations in one way or the other. And that's incredibly problematic. And look, I'm not going to pretend as though I can predict the outcome as to whether or not this will lead to Donald Trump's impeachment because I just don't know. But we do know that there's certainly a case to be made that Donald Trump and Loretta Lynch both tried to obstruct justice and influence James Comey's investigation. And I'm not a big fan of James Comey, but I mean, what he says here, it's incredibly incriminating. I think it's very, very problematic. So look, if you're consistent, you would see both of these acts and both individuals who tried to influence James Comey as an obstruction of justice, at least potentially. But if you think one is an obstruction and the other isn't, then you really need to reevaluate your position because I think it's an untenable position. I think that both of these are very similar instances of potential obstructions of justice. So, uh, yeah, Democrats overall, they got more than they bargained for. They thought that they would have James Comey testify and incriminate Trump, but in the end, he may have incriminated Trump and Loretta Lynch. So, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, but I think that so long as we hold elites accountable, hold plutocrats and the oligarchy accountable, and let them know that they are not allowed to do this, then I'm, I'm okay with the outcome. Because could you imagine what would happen if a peasant like me or you tried to persuade James Comey to conclude one thing or the other, you know, when it comes to his investigation? Oh, we'd be locked up immediately. But if you're wealthy, you get a free pass. So this whole testimony is incredibly angering to me because it just shows that we have a two-tier justice system where the, the elites use their influence to get away with doing things that are just unacceptable and committing felonies while the poor, you know, we're, we're penalized for it. So, yeah, <laughs> there there is, there's something to be, uh, there's a case to be made here. So while the country is currently captivated by James Comey's testimony and what will potentially be the outcome of it, well, Senate Republicans are trying to push through their insidious agenda while we're all distracted, and they are now trying to ram the American Healthcare Act, which is their horrible so-called health care bill that would repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it with a plan that would throw 24 million people off of their health insurance through the Senate, and they're trying to do that with little to no scrutiny. So Think Progress explains, Senate Speaker Mitch McConnell said he is striving to get a vote on the Republican health care bill by July 4th before Congress leaves for August recess. As ludicrous as this deadline seems, the Senate could pull it off, but it will be done without much public scrutiny. Senator Mitch McConnell implemented Senate Rule 14 Wednesday to fast-track the GOP House health bill. This rule allows the Senate to skip the committee process, goodbye full Senate committee debate, and instead fast-tracks the bill, moving it on the Senate calendar so it can be brought to a vote. Republicans need to pass a health care bill immediately. And they need to pass a bill that reconciles the needs of both the House and Senate by September 30th in order to use reconciliation. Reconciliation is a 1974 act that expedites the Senate's consideration of bills that pertain to the budget. 
While Washington watches James Comey testify before the Senate Intelligence Committee, Senate Republican leaders and the healthcare working group will still be meeting for a working luncheon to continue negotiations. The Senate's job is harder because unlike the House, the Senate cannot vote on a bill until the Congressional Budget Office scores it. CBO needs to score the bill to see if it meets budgetary standards of reconciliation. The Senate health bill needs to save $2 billion, which the House bill successfully did. But the Senate bill is also bound by the Bird Rule, which has its own cost of additional surgical rules, like that the bill cannot change Social Security spending or dedicated revenue. The CBO will need time to score the bill, so fast-tracking this Senate health bill makes the most sense for Senate Republicans. So the media and most of the country, we're all distracted right now by James Comey's testimony. And on Wednesday, Mitch McConnell moved to implement Rule 14. So he's going to shove this horrible excuse for a healthcare bill down our throats while nobody's looking. And that's just, that's not right. Because this bill has a 17% approval rating. So they know damn well they're not going to get this codified into law unless, unless they do something really shady, unless they're able to pass it using reconciliation. And, you know, if anything, this is a strategy that is bereft of common sense, if you ask me, because by pushing forward a bill with a 17% approval rating, aren't you thinking about how that's going to impact your electoral chances come 2018, come 2020? I mean, if you honestly think that you can foist this bill upon us and there won't be any consequences, then you're just horribly mistaken. And make no mistake about it, the Democrats are awful, they are corrupt, but there's going to be a sweep if Republicans do something this shady and this shitty. Because, again, 24 million more people will be thrown off their health insurance and discrimination against people with pre-existing conditions will be a thing again. So, go ahead and try it, but not only will, will there be repercussions electorally, but this is going to move the needle much more closer to single pair. I mean, because we already saw a huge swing in public opinion polling just between March 2016 and January of 2017 when it comes to support for Medicare for All. So if you do this, if millions of more people get thrown off of their health insurance, then I think we're going to reach a point where even a majority of Republicans support Medicare for All because we already know a plurality of Republicans support it. So more Republicans support Medicare for All than not. A plurality do. So if they do this, they're only making single-payer inevitable. And this is why some Republicans are already saying single-payer will be law of the land because of the Republican Party and because of the failures of the Democratic Party. So, you know, if this does pass, I'm starting to think that the light at the end of the tunnel will be that there's going to have to be a response if this passes. And that response will ultimately be single-payer. But meanwhile, while we're waiting for them to propose an alternative to the AHCA, people who are left out, people who lose their insurance, will die. So, again, ultimately the response is not to repeal the Affordable Care Act and go forward with Paul Ryan and Donald Trump's horrible excuse for a health care bill. What you do is you build upon the Affordable Care Act and expand Medicare to everyone. That's what you do. That's the only solution. So, um, yeah. Try it. Try it, Republicans. Please try it, because there will be hell to pay. And what you can do now is make a difference by calling your senator and letting him or her know that this cannot stand. If they vote for this bill, you will vote against them, because that 
is something. I mean, throwing people off of their health insurance, we shouldn't have to be fighting for things like this. I mean, we already have to deal with complacency when it comes to the Democratic Party, but Republicans actually trying to harm the American people, we shouldn't have to be dealing with it. So let let your voice be heard. Call them and let them know this cannot stand. Even though it's the case that we are living in volatile times in American politics, I think that we shouldn't get demoralized, even though it's easy to get demoralized, because when we just take a moment to stop and reflect on the journey thus far, on the progressive movement catalyzed by Bernie Sanders, we have gained a lot of momentum, we've gained a lot of ground, and I think that it's important for us as a community to come together and think about the progress that we've already made. Think about what we've done in terms of healthcare. We've monopolized the healthcare debate. There's no doubt about that. We have monopolized political discourse with respect to this one issue. Progressives now set the terms of debate when it comes to healthcare. And now a majority of House Democrats support single payer healthcare, even though the rest of the party is reluctant to get on board with that. But nonetheless, we, we did this. We made this progress. We are part of a cultural shift that is changing the way we talk about healthcare in America. And the New York Times has an article where they really highlight how this is the case. So at rallies and in town hall meetings and in a collection of blue state legislatures, liberal Democrats have pressed lawmakers with growing impatience to support the creation of a single-payer system in which the state or federal government would supplant private health insurance with a program of public coverage. And in California on Thursday, the Democrat-controlled state Senate approved a preliminary plan for an single-payer system, the first serious attempt to do so there since then-Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, a Republican, vetoed legislation in 2006 and 2008. Yet, as Democrats regroup from the 2016 defeat, leaders say the party has plainly shifted well to the left on the issue, setting the stage for a larger battle over the health care system in next year's congressional elections and the 2020 presidential race. Their liberal base, emboldened by Senator Bernie Sanders' forceful advocacy of government-backed health care last year, is increasingly unsatisfied with the Affordable Care Act and is demanding more drastic changes to the private health insurance system. In a sign of shifting sympathies, most House Democrats have now endorsed a single-payer proposal. Party strategists say they expect that the 2020 presidential nominee will embrace a broader version of public health coverage than any Democratic standard bearer has in decades. Roseanne DeMauro, the executive director of National Nurses United and the California Nurses Association, powerful labor groups that back single-payer care said the issue had reached a boiling point on the left. Supporters of universal health care, including activists with Mr. Morrill's union, repeatedly interrupted speakers at the California Democratic Party's convention in May, challenging party leaders to embrace socialized medicine. Demonstrators waving signs with single-payer slogans have become a regular feature at town hall meetings hosted by members of Congress. There is a cultural shift, said Mr. Morrill, who was a prominent backer of Mr. Sanders. Healthcare is now seen as something everyone deserves. It's like a national light went off. That's exactly it. A light went off. Uh, and me personally, I've never seen this much enthusiasm. Even back in 2009, when Democrats took over government and they were discussing healthcare, even though I wanted a single-payer system, I mean, I don't see the momentum then that I see now when Democrats have no chance of passing this system. And it's because we are done 
taking crumbs. We're done with incremental change. And when you look at HR 676, it was introduced just on January 24th with only 61 co-sponsors. And as of May 24th, it managed to garner 61 more co-sponsors, bringing it to a total of 112 co-sponsors, which is a majority of House Democrats. And this would not be possible without your activism. And we are now literally witnessing a paradigm shift in this country where we're no longer talking about healthcare in terms of it creating revenue and profits for private health insurance companies. We're actually talking about the abolition of private health insurance companies because they don't serve us. They serve themselves and we're done with that. We want healthcare that actually does what the name implies it does. Provide health care and coverage to citizens, to all citizens. We're not going to leave out people. We want everyone to be covered. And when you look at public opinion polls, Pew Research found that 60% of the country believes it's the government's responsibility to ensure that all citizens have health coverage. And this includes 85% of Democrats, up 8 points from March of 2016, and 32% of Republicans, which is a 13-point swing between March of 2016 and now. So in just nine months, public opinion moved even closer to single payer in monumental ways. So there's been a cultural shift, and even though it feels as though we're not making any progress, we're making progress. We are changing culture, and the thing about cultural shifts is that even though it happens automatically with the general populations, there's usually one pusher. There's there's a catalyst that always tends to push culture in one way or the other. So you can look back to the early 2010s when pop culture was responsible for pushing LGBT rights. And between 2005 and 2010, you saw this huge swing in support of marriage equality and LGBT rights. And we're seeing the same type of swing now. But the question is, who is the individual or thing that catalyzed this cultural shift with respect to single-payer health care? Well, that's easy. That individual is Bernie Sanders, who announced his presidential campaign back in April of 2015 and changed the terms of the debate. If you raise the issues that are on the hearts and minds of the American people, if you try to put together a movement which says we have got to stand together as a people and say that this capital, this beautiful capital, our country belongs to all of us and not the billionaire class, that's not raising an issue. That is winning elections. That's where the American people are. So that was a clip from the day that Bernie Sanders announced his presidential campaign. And it was the day that not just America, but the world changed forever. What he did was he raised the issues that we care about. And he overcame a 60-point deficit and nearly beat a political behemoth like Hillary Clinton because of it. So we're not talking about just defending the ACA. We're not talking about making progress and moving towards a public option. We're talking about a single-payer healthcare system just like Canada's. And this is because Bernie Sanders catalyzed that cultural shift. Without him, we would not be having this discussion, or certainly not as much as we are now. So even though I get frustrated with Bernie Sanders for different reasons sometimes, we have to credit him for this because this is what he did here in pushing us forward when it comes to the issue of single payer, that's something that we are all indebted to him for. So I'm incredibly thankful to him. And look, even though, again, it's easy to get demoralized, even though Republicans are attacking the Affordable Care Act right now, they want to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Think about how we've changed culture and the impact that that will inevitably have on policy. It's inspiring when we really step back and think about it. We're making progress. It's slow, but it's happening. 
Over the course of the last couple of months, I've tried to profile town hall events and how there is a tremendous amount of momentum when it comes to the issue of single-payer health insurance. So there's been people that are showing up to town halls of both Republican and Democratic congressmen and women and demanding that they co-sponsor H.R. 676. And if they are a senator, then they're telling them to get on board with a single-payer health care system and co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' bill when he does, in fact, introduce it. And now with 112 co-sponsors of John Conyers' bill, it is now the case that a majority of House Democrats support single-payer health care, but there is a few holdouts. So one of them that you know about is Representative Denny Heck of Olympia, Washington, and on April 14th, I talked about how he refused to support a single-payer health care system. I called him, and then I urged my viewers to do the same, and he then received hundreds, if not thousands, of calls. But after two months, he has yet to co-sponsor H.R. 676. So he has voters around the country reaching out to him. He has people showing up to town halls telling him to co-sponsor H.R. 676, and he's not listening. But he's not alone. So on May 19th, I talked about Representative Ruben Cahuen, who had a grieving mother show up to his town hall and begged him to co-sponsor H.R. 676. But he looked her in the face and told her no. Now, I called his office, and thousands upon thousands of my viewers called his office, and we know that he got a lot of calls because we actually overloaded his inbox, and we were then forced to direct calls to his D.C. office. But seeing that a grieving mother's plea didn't move him, it's not too surprising that thousands of phone calls didn't move him either. So, this is unacceptable, and there will be consequences for their actions, so I'm going to give you an update on these two individuals and first we're gonna call them even though it probably won't make that big of a difference but please feel free to join along I'm just gonna leave them short voicemails so first we'll call Denny Heck at 202-225-9740 Hello, you've reached the office of Congressman Denny Heck please leave your name and a brief message as well as your phone number email address and address. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Thank you. Record your message after the tone. When you've finished, you can hang up or press 1 for more options. I've called Denny Heck. Thousands of people called Denny Heck. His constituents have called De Denny Heck repeatedly about H.R. 676, and we want him to co-sponsor H.R. 676, and we've been calling him for months, and he is refusing to acknowledge that we even exist or care about this issue. And because of this, we will be trying to primary him in 2018 because his reluctance to support this, we know, is contingent on the fact that he has taken thousands of dollars from the health insurance industry, and that's not acceptable. So if he doesn't co-sponsor H.R. 676, we will be doing everything we can to make sure that he loses his seat. Thank you. Now, when it comes to Ruben Cahuen, his number is 202-225-9894. Ruben Kidman is not available. Record your message after the tone. When you've finished, you can hang up or press 1 for more options. Hello, Ruben Kahwen. We have called you multiple times. You've had thousands of people reach out to you and beg you to co-sponsor H.R. 676. 
and you told a grieving mother that you would not co-sponsor it, and now you're avoiding the calls of thousands of people across the country and in your own district, and that's not acceptable. So I'm here to tell you that if you do not co-sponsor HR 676 very soon, there will be a primary challenger, and we're going to be kicking you out of office because clearly you're a coward and you don't want to stand up to the health insurance industry and do what a majority of your colleagues have done co-sponsor John Conyers' bill. This is non-negotiable. Either co-sponsor it or lose your seat. It's very simple. Now, when it comes to Representative Ruben Cohen, I've got some exciting news. So when I tell him he's going to lose his seat, I'm not just bluffing. I mean, he's actually going to get a primary challenger. Now, the good news, and I can't talk too much about it, is that there are certain organizations that are trying to recruit a primary challenger for Representative Ruben Cohen, and furthermore, uh, I may have found um, a primary challenger based on a contact that I have, so I'll be getting in touch with this individual very soon, and we will make sure we do everything we can to defeat Ruben Cohen, because he thinks that he can ignore us and ignore the grassroots. Well, you're not going to be able to. Now, when it comes to Denny Heck, however, the same is not true. So here's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to ask for all of you, if you live in the 10th District of Washington, to run Reach out to me, reach out to Justice Democrats, reach out to brand new Congress, and run against him. Um, if you are in this district and you're not happy with his refusal to co-sponsor H.R. 676, we need you to run. If you're above 25 years of age, you can run. There's no reason why you shouldn't, uh, because we need someone who's going to get in there and represent the people. And if you plan to represent the people and not take corporate donations, you're qualified. Don't start to doubt yourself. So I'm calling on someone to challenge Denny Heck. If you are interested and you're seriously interested or you may know someone, email Mike at humanistreport.com and I'm willing to hear you out and help you get started. Um, so that's where we stand now. I'm not just talking about these people and their unwillingness to co-sponsor it because I like ranting. I actually want to make a difference. I want them to co-sponsor HR 676 and I'm not stopping until every single Democratic congressman and woman has co-sponsored John Conyers' bill, and then we're still not stopping. Then we're going to move on to Republicans and get them to co-sponsor this bill, too, because we're done taking crumbs. We're done taking incrementalism. It's single-payer or bust for us. Support it or leave office, and that's what it's come down to. So uh, we can't back down. Please continue to call with me, but know that um, <laughs> calling probably won't do much when it comes to Denny Heck and Ruben Cohen, because usually calling congressmen and women actually has a makes a difference, but these people, they just have no regard for what the country wants, and they don't care about the fact that the overwhelming majority of Democratic constituents support single-payer, so we're going to do what we can to defeat them, and if we fail in 2018, we're going to try again in 2020, and if we fail again in 2020, we're going to try again in 2022, because we're not backing down until we get single-payer health care. Since President Donald Trump announced his decision to unilaterally withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, there has been a monumental amount of political fallout since he did that, and there hasn't been backlash just in the U.S. There's been backlash around the world. People are not happy with his decision, and even though I was initially really discouraged by what he decided to do, I actually do feel a little bit more hopeful now because... Him being lambasted sends a huge message to future Republican administrations that if you stifle progress that we make to mitigate climate change, 
there's going to be hell to pay. We will call you out. We will lambast you. We will rake you over the coals because what you're doing is not in the best interest of the species. Now, seeing that Donald Trump is incapable of speaking about this issue or really many issues without putting his foot in his mouth, he decided to send out his stooges to do damage control on his behalf. And since they're trying to defend an untenable position, they also failed at doing so. So first, we have Mike Pence talking about his decision. For some reason or another, this issue of climate change has emerged as a paramount issue for the left in this country and around the world. And, and through Kyoto, through, through President Obama's cap and trade agenda, and then through the, in the last year of his administration to have America saddled in an international agreement uh, in the Paris Accord, uh, I, I, think, uh, I, I think put a real burden on our economy and on our people. It's a paramount issue to the left because it impacts the future of humanity. And the fact that he thinks it's ostensibly an issue that only is important to the left should embarrass him because that shows that conservatives are not in touch with reality. They're ignoring the overwhelming majority of climate scientists that say global warming is occurring. And yes, it's anthropogenic. It is man-made. So, he should be embarrassed by that. But he thinks that it's bolstering his argument. And furthermore, you know, he he's not on board with fighting climate change because he's bought off by the oil and gas industry and not even the aggregate oil and gas industry anymore because not every single oil and gas company is in favor of us doing nothing about climate change because, you know, after Kyoto, after the Paris Climate Accord, many of them have already seen climate change legislation as something that's inevitable and they've taken steps to invest in ways to cut back on their carbon footprint. And Donald Trump hurt the country, he hurt the world, and he hurt humanity by making a decision that is just irrational. So Mike Pence is a buffoon to say something like that, to say that it's only an issue that the left is concerned about. Well, maybe, you know, the right doesn't care about it in the United States, but trust me, in other countries, right-wingers are not as dense as they are here in America. Now, of course, you know, the EPA director, Scott Pruitt, who sued the EPA multiple times, came out to defend Donald Trump. When NASA says that 95% of the experts in this area around the world believe that the Earth is warming, and you are up there throwing out information that says, well, maybe this is being exaggerated and so forth, and you're talking about climate exaggerators, it just seems to a lot of people around the world that you and the president are just denying the reality. And the reality of the situation is that climate change is happening and it is a significant threat to the planet. Let me say this, and I've said it in the confirmation process, and I said it yesterday. We have done a tremendous amount as a country to achieve reductions in CO2. And we have done that through technology and innovation. We will continue to do that. We will continue to stay engaged. Uh, we are a part, as you know, of the UNFCCC. And that process encourages voices by subnational groups and by countries across the, the, the globe. And we are going to stay engaged and try to work through agreements and achieve outcomes that put America's interest first. This is not, this is not a message to anyone in the world that, that America is somewhat should be apologetic of its CO2 position. We are actually making tremendous advances. We're just not going to agree to, we're just not going to agree to frameworks and, and agreements that put us at an economic disadvantage and hurt citizens across this country. Are yes, sir. Well, that, there's no evidence of that. Yes, sir. There's no evidence he's putting his head in the sand, guys. Next question. I don't even think that these guys listen to the words that come out of their mouth. It's just, it's verbal diarrhea 
and <laughs> they take no time at all to actually think about what they're saying because it's just absurd. So, um, he is, in fact, putting his head in the sand, not just with respect to the issue of climate change and whether or not it's anthropogenic, but he's putting his head in the sand with respect to the economic benefits that the U.S. would gain by being a signatory to the Paris Climate Accord. Because there's negative economic ramifications if you pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement. But what he really meant to say was that it hurts the oil and gas industry economically, his donors specifically. But he can't tell you that because that's an indefensible position, so he decided to just lie and obfuscate the truth, like Scott Pruitt typically does. And during his tenure as the Attorney General for Oklahoma, uh, he has been an enemy of the planet. So you shouldn't expect anything less than lies and obfuscation from Scott Pruitt, but nonetheless, um, he demonstrated that it's really difficult to defend a position that's just downright indefensible. Yes or no? Does the president believe that climate change is real and a threat to the United States? You, you know, what's interesting about all the discussions we had through the last several weeks have been focused on one singular issue. Is Paris good or not for this country? That's the discussions I've had with the president. So that's been my focus. The focus remained on whether put, Paris put us at a disadvantage, and in fact, it did. It put us at an economic disadvantage. You, you may not know this, but Paris... It set targets of 26 to 28 percent. With the entire agenda of the pre previous administration, we still fell 40 percent short of those targets. Uh, it was a failed deal to begin with. And, and even if all of the targets were met by all nations across the globe, it only reduced the temperature by less than two cents of one degree. So that is something that the, parent, the, the president focused upon with respect to how it impacted us economically and whether there were good environmental objectives that were achieved as a result of Paris. His decision was no, and that was the extent of our discussions. But yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes or no? Yes, ma'am. I'm not even mad. I'm just impressed. That was a Matrix-level dodge right there. He just dodged the question like Neo from The Matrix and made a complete ass of himself. So this is the modern day GOP. They are an enemy to humanity. And it's not just like they are hurting people in America. They're hurting people around the world now by their incompetence and their hatred of humanity. So this party is the party of death and destruction. I know people don't like it when I say that, but tough shit. They push policies that are detrimental to society and humanity and the planet. And that's unforgivable. So Donald Trump can send out as many stooges as he likes to try to defend his stupid decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. But... You opened a can of worms, and you can't put the cat back in the bag. You pissed off a lot of people in the U.S. and around the world, so good job. The political fallout will continue, and uh, I'm glad. If you're a progressive, you already know that we are facing a battle on numerous fronts. So we're fighting for single-payer healthcare. We're fighting to protect net neutrality. We're speaking out against U.S. imperialism. We're speaking out against legalized bribery and money in politics. So there's so many issues and we all care about issues, some more some issues more so than others, and it's really important that we just kind of take a moment to reflect on the issues that are most important to progressives. So what I decided to do was pull my Patreon patrons in order to ask them what issues are most important to them. And with 57 votes, single-payer healthcare was the most important issue to most of my viewers. Coming in second was other, and I'll tell you what they talked about, and I think they make a phenomenal case about how I left out one really crucial option. Now, we also have net neutrality with 26 votes, ending U.S. imperialism with another 26 votes, climate change mitigation with 29 votes, so that came in third place, 
a $15 minimum wage with 12 votes, criminal justice reform with 9 votes, student loan relief with 10 votes, rebuilding infrastructure with 5 votes, ending NAFTA with 3 votes, and zero votes for Russia, Russia, Russia. Now, there's kind of a theme here. They don't necessarily care about the Russia story because all these other issues that they voted for disproportionately impact them. This has a real impact on their lives. So getting to their comments and what they care about, Nabil Siddiqui states, reversing Citizens United, getting money out of politics, will help further progressive policies. Ash Sinera states, while the rest of these issues are extremely important and issues tie in together quite often, I couldn't decide between climate change mitigation and getting money out of our political system. If forced, I suppose I would say climate change mitigation is more important in terms of impact, but getting money out of politics may be necessary if we are to reasonably expect us to get the climate change policies we need. So in chronological terms, I would say money out of politics. Doug Fultz states, getting big money out of politics. Spencer Eek states, as someone said, money in politics affects everything. We can't hope for significant policy progress without fixing this first. Nisha Patel states, climate change is our most dire problem. Money in politics is the root of all our problems. Net neutrality is the only way we will fix any of these problems. However, and I'm ashamed to admit this, stories about Trump effing up over and over again are stories I'm most likely to click on. Jeff states, basic income, something I left out that's also really important. K. Patton states, I believe without net neutrality, we wouldn't be able to continue organizing and fighting for all the other issues that are so important for health and security of all people. Nancy Evans argues, as a senior citizen with an adult disabled child, saving Social Security and Medicare is a top priority. And we have Jean Hannigan, who says, wish you'd offered ranked choice voting for the list above. I have more than one choice, and ranked choice voting itself ought to be on the list, as should ending Citizens United. Yeah, so th these are all really great comments and phenomenal feedback. Uh, if I could redo this poll, I would certainly include campaign finance reform as well as electoral reform, specifically ranked choice voting, because I think these are issues that are incredibly important. And really, I mean, these, these comments really identify the true issue here. It's money in politics. It is the root of all of our issues because all these other issues are such big problems because of in, uh, because of money in politics. So we're not able to get single-payer healthcare because of all the money that's being flooded into our political system and how health insurance industry lobbyists and donors are buying off our politicians. So, I mean, the comments here are really insightful. They're great. And really, you could take money in politics and tie it to every single one of these issues. So I think that this was, was a really fascinating poll. Um, and I totally agree with the outcome. I think I would probably rank all these issues the same way. And I certainly agree with the comments. Um, so yeah, great, great insight from all of our Patreon patrons. You wrote, here's the thing you have to understand about Ted Cruz. I like Ted Cruz more than most of my other colleagues like Ted Cruz, and I hate Ted Cruz. Yeah, well, that, that's about, uh, he's sort of the exception that proves the rule. He's kind of a toxic uh, guy in an office, the guy who microwaves fish. My name is Corey Bush. I'm a nurse, an ordained pastor, a social justice advocate, community activist, and hopefully soon, one of your elected officials. I'm a parent, uh, I'm a single parent. 
So I understand uh, walking through taking care of children by yourself. I understand what that daily routine is like. Um, I know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck. Um, and then on top of living paycheck to paycheck to wonder about your future and the future of your children. It's not about the title. Um, I just want to be in a position where I'm able to help people on a larger scale. I've been able to do it on a small scale with no name, no money. And this is why I'm running for United States Congress to represent Missouri's first district. Hi everyone, so I am here with Corey Bush. She is running to represent the first district of Missouri. Uh, and she's here to talk about her campaign, which is one of the most progressive campaigns that you will see next year in 2018. So Corey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I this appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so so what made you want to run for Congress? Well, um, one thing about it is if we don't run, we keep we continue to talk about what's happening in Congress, how Congress does not represent us, how D.C. is not about us. It's not for us. They don't listen to us. Even the numbers show us that they kind of don't hear us. And so the for me, the only way to start to change that is for people like myself to go out after it and to start occupying those seats and the only way we occupy the seats is to run right that's perfect so let, mm -hmm. me, let me ask you this because there's a ton of issues right now and if you were to be elected it would be very difficult to focus on a ton of issues so what do you think would be a priority for you or a couple of priorities if you were elected um, definitely health care is a great priority for me. Um, as you can see, um, you know, I'm, I'm here in my scrubs right now. I just got off work and came <laughs> straight over to this interview. Um, you know, I work as a nurse currently in mental health, community-based mental health at that. Um, and so I'm able to see every day um, the needs of the people, of ordinary people just like myself. Um, you know, sometimes we get um, caught up in treating mental health as if it's something horrible and something bad. Those people should be shunned and pushed away, you know, but there is actually no different. Like schizophrenia is no different than diabetes or, or, or heart um, disease or anything like that. It's just a chronic, it's a chronic illness that someone is battling. And because of that, they need help. They need services. They need resources. Um, and so with the state of where Medicaid is right now, the state of Affordable Care Act, um, even in Missouri, the fact that we did not expand Medicaid, we have so many people hurting. And for me, because I work in that every day, I spend a, a big part, a portion of my day trying to find money to help someone who just wants um, the medication that will get them through the next 30 days. They're fighting to try to find that money. So I'm uh, one medication, $1,800, $1,500 for that one person for just for that one, just for that one medication, you know, and they may have five or six, you know, and so I spend my day you know, running around trying to take care of that one person. But the thing is, once I find it, if I'm able to find that resource, that open door, we just help somebody to be able to, we, we just increase their quality of life for the next 30 days. We just help them to be able to go to work if they have a part-time job or take care of their children. Um, because, you know, then we have the other side that says, hey, you know, people with mental illness, you know, they do all of these horrible things. You know, they do, you know, they are the ones that do, you know, uh, they commit crimes more and all of those things, you know, which that backs me up. I really don't like when people say that. Um, but the thing is, 
if you feel that way, why not put more resources into mental health? Why do we push that aside? You know, but not even not just mental health, just health care itself. Health care is a basic right. It's a human right. Each and every person should have that cushion. So that's one of the as you can see, I'm passionate about that. <laughs> I love it. Hey, you know what? I, I just want to thank you as someone who has mental health issues. I have a severe panic disorder. Thank you for talking about that, because that's something that nobody wants to talk about, especially mental health, because they don't realize that just like, you know, if you can break an arm, you know, there could be something wrong with your body. You know, your brain is a part of your body. So, of course, there could be something wrong with it. So I really am appreciative of the fact that you would talk about that. So when it comes to policy in healthcare, here's what I want to ask you and what I know my viewers are curious about. So there is a bill in Congress, H.R. 676. Um, this would expand Medicare to everyone. Would you co-sponsor that if you were elected and support a single-payer healthcare system? Yes, I, I probably would have sponsored it, you know, so, yeah, um, yeah if I was there. So, yes, definitely, um, everybody. Because you know what? If it's good enough for Congress, if that's what Congress has, if that's what they're using, if it's good enough for them, why shouldn't we have that? Why shouldn't each and every person be able to have quality health care for their families? So, yes, 100%. That's perfect. Now, one thing that I've got to ask you about, and a question that I like to pose to a lot of the, the Justice Democrats and anyone running through brand new Congress, is if you are running against someone who's corporate financed and corporate backed, you know, you're running at a huge disadvantage because you don't have a super PAC, you're not taking corporate money, you are a strictly grassroots funded candidate. So why do you think it's so important to refuse corporate money, even if you're putting yourself at a disadvantage? Uh, because the, that's the problem that we have now is that the voice of the people is not loud enough. The voices of the people, um, they get um, it's it's. If we care or not, if we, you know, eh, you know, the people come second, you know, um, and for me, I've seen how me, myself, I always bring it back to me and my own personal experiences of how feeling voiceless, you know, feeling like nobody cares. And, I, you know, I can keep throwing these rocks at this window, you know, but nobody, you know, that little tap is not doing anything, you know, until I can shatter that glass. And I feel like that's the place that we've been in and feeling like caged in because you don't have this voice. Is, is a big part of the problem right now. So I want to make sure that people, regular folks like myself, have the opportunity to have their voices heard because I saw it through our all of the work, all of the activism we did in Ferguson. I saw it how each and every just regular Every regular person like myself, we were able to take what we had, the little bit we had, which was our voices and our feet, and we changed the entire world, you know, and so I was able to see it. So it's not just something that it's like it's a pipe dream or, you know, maybe it could happen. It sounds great. No, we we've seen it happen. I've I've touched that. And so because I've touched it and I saw how just being diligent and persistent, you know, being there, coffee in the morning and their tea at night, you know, staying in their faces says, hey, I want you out of my face, so let me listen to you. And so if we keep pushing that forward, um, then we know we'll see change. I had someone in my last race. Uh, she called me and she said, Corey, I have um, I have some money for you. I want to donate to your campaign. And I said, oh, okay. And she said, can you come and pick it up? And I was in the middle of a few things. And I said, well, can you just, you know, can you just put it, can you just send it through, you know, on the Act Blue? And she said, well, I need you. I, I don't have access to that. You know, I need you to come and pick it up. You know, I need to get this $3 out of my hand. 
And she said, it's all I have, but I need to get it to you because I just really want you to win. And she said, when I get some more money, I'll give you the other 10. But for right now, if you would just take this $3 before I spend it. Now, the thing was, this was all the money she had. This is a mother. She um, suffers from, from some issues. She has children. Um, she's a single parent. And so I knew that that $3 to her was like maybe 300 or 3000 to someone else. And just just like that, her voice matters. And I would never want her voice to be lost in the shuffle of some corporate, um, of corporate America. Um, she has to be heard. Right. Hey, you're giving me chills by that story. You're, you, that's <laughs> awesome. I wanted to talk about Ferguson briefly with respect to uh, your opponent, Lacey Clay. So he... He isn't the worst of the worst in terms of Democrats, but certainly there's issues where there are huge problems, huge Mm -hmm. red flags. So one thing that he did in particular to me is unforgivable. So you probably know about the fact that he voted against an amendment proposed by Alan Grayson to a Defense Department appropriations bill that would prevent the Pentagon from funding uh, or giving uh, local police forces military-grade weapons and military-grade vehicles. And if you represent Ferguson after what they've been through, I don't know how that's forgivable. So is there anything that you wanted to say to the people of Ferguson specifically, since if you were elected, you would be representing Ferguson, uh, with respect to demilitarization of the police and where you stand on that issue? Um, Just that I'm going to fight against it in every way I can. Um, I know what it's like to be in your neighborhood and see uh, military vehicles in your neighborhood. I know what it's like to walk past. I I was standing the place where I get my nails done, where I used to get my nails done. The um, those M wraps were right there in front of the building. You know, this is across the street from the place where I would get my hair done. You know, this is a place. This is a street that I frequent just as a regular citizen. And that, and at that point, it was turned into a place that I didn't know. You know, it was a place where I would, where we were being shot at and tear gas and shot at with there were real bullets flying there were um, rubber bullets flying it was just it was total chaos um tear gas everywhere it's just so much and and i'm i'm looking at dogs and you know it's it was craziness but this was that is my neighborhood that is where i live you know and so um because of that nobody should have to feel that fear that um that uh feel like you're an outsider or, or an enemy in your own home so i will fight against it not just because i've heard about how bad it was but because i know because i've touched it that thing was right there in front of me and so in no way um will i ever support anything that's going to say hey um we're going to um treat our citizens we're going to treat not we're going to treat the people that live here in this country we're going to treat them like they're the enemy of the state i'm not it's, I, in no way would i ever support that that's perfect thank you when i saw mm-hmm. that uh i was i was really shocked it didn't look like america it looked like a different country and yes. we're seeing this more and more i mean you see with the dakota access pipeline protests you know and the militarized police there and the yes. harassment it's really disturbing. So to have someone like you step up and say unequivocally, I will not support that is really, really encouraging. Uh, so let me ask you this. So if we don't live in Missouri, what can we do to support Cory Bush? Can we donate to you? Um, can we phone bank for you if we don't live in the state? What can we do to help your campaign? Because I really like what I'm hearing. Okay, so all of the above. Um, I have an Act Blue account that you can go to. My name is C-O-R-I-B-U-S-H. 
I'm the good bush. Don't let the last name fool you. Um, <laughs> don't let it throw you off. <laughs> um, um, so you can um, donate to me through the Act Blue, um, $3, $5, $7, um, even that great $27, however you want to do it. And every dollar counts with me. Um, no dollar is too small. Um, uh, also, just putting my information out when people do what you're doing right now. I appreciate this so much that you are giving me this opportunity. Um, so when people share um, share this video um, on social media, on I'm on Facebook, Instagram, I'm on Twitter. Um, it's at Corey Bush on Twitter. It's uh, Corey Bush on everything else. Um, so just putting that information out. Um, and then even sometimes when people, I've seen people just, just if you just tweet my name or something, you know, just to kind of keep it out there in the forefront of people, that helps. And also Justice Democrats, uh, brand new Congress, just um, even just the shout outs to them, because the more shout outs they get, the more they're able to do for us. Um, we have such a great slate of candidates um, that I'm running with, and I'm so appreciative of this opportunity. So just tell tell your friends, tell your neighbors. It doesn't matter if you're not in Missouri. Um, you can phone bank. We even have it set up. Um, or, or I guess it'll be ready maybe in the next week where people with the dollar for people that um, so people that are out of state can still phone bank for us. Um, so it's it's plenty of things available um, to do. Perfect. Well, anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? Yeah, I just want to say um, I've been I've been told several times that, you know, well, Corey, you know, you don't have. Um, you, you don't look like that politician that should be in Congress or you don't, you know, you, you're, you're from a nursing background. You're not an attorney or you're not, you know, all of the what the things that I'm not, you know. And so I just want to encourage anybody that's um, that's thinking about running for office. Don't look at what you don't have. Look at what you have to offer to the world. You have something great. If you know you have something great, you know you have a voice. Don't don't sit back and listen to other people tell you what you don't have. Push that thing forward and help change our world. This is how we change our world by standing up and continuing to push because the struggle won't stop if we're seated. We have to stand up. And pray with our feet. I say pray with our feet because the people say, okay, sit down and you go in the back room. I'm a preacher. You go in the back room <laughs> and you go pray. Uh-uh. No, I, I go in my back room and I go pray. And then I come back out and I take the fire that I got in that back room and I'm taking it out to the world because we have to change our world. Um, and then the other thing is don't be afraid of what doesn't look like what you think it should look like. You know, um, if, if, if I, if I grabbed a hold of that, I wouldn't be where I am now. I'm just a regular person that just decided that no matter what, I have to keep going. And when I think about it, uh, Mike, the people have asked me, how do I keep going? Because I'll, you know, I've had so many death threats. I've had so many, so many things have happened to me. I've been terrorized horribly um, over the last three years. But um, people say, well, why do you keep going? Why would you want to go in Congress? Why would you want to do that after all the things that you've been through? And my answer to them is my fear of what they can do to me it, that's not the issue. My the desire to see my desire to see change is greater than any fear of what they could do to me. So I give that to everyone else. Push forward no matter what, and let's change this United States of America. I am here with Paula Swearingen. She is the primary challenger to Joe Manchin in West Virginia, and she is running against a political behemoth who is raising millions of dollars. He's basically the poster boy for corporatism in the Democratic Party, and I would argue that he's basically the worst of the worst. 
So she has chosen to take no corporate money, no PAC money. So she's at a disadvantage, but when it comes to having heart and actually caring about the issues, she is one of the best in the country right now running. So Paula, thank you so much for coming on the show. Can you tell me why you decided to run in West Virginia and challenge Joe Manchin? Thank you for having me, Mike. Um, there's various reasons that I started. I decided to run against him. Um, it's feast or famine for us. Um, we live, you know, we live in conditions comparable. Well, some people do live in condi- conditions comparable to a third world country here. Um, people are divided. We are divided against each other for basic human rights like food and water. We're one of the sickest and poorest states in the nation. Um, trillions of dollars went out of this state for coal. People don't even recognize the struggles of the people in the north and the fracking that's going on there. But it's really not even just a pollution issue. It's There's there's no promise for a stable economic infrastructure for our future. And Joe Manchin, he has, Evan Jenkins too, has financial ties to the coal industry and these other corporations and they're not catering to our communities and they're not being public servants. And I have fought for many, many years, begging for clean water, begging for prosperity, begging for a future for our children, begging them to quit putting silica dust in their kids' lungs, begging them to put, you know, minor safety first and and expand our workforce. And it's just not been happening. Um, So I decided that the people of West Virginia need to fight back. Um, So that's exactly, you know, after all the fighting that I've been doing, I'm hoping through my voice that people will stand up with me and we take our state back Um, because that's what it's going to take. I mean, our government is bought and paid for and we're not going to have any chance. Our children are not going to have any chance for a future here. Um, So many families have already moved out of West Virginia. Um, I want to bring our families back home. I want us to have a future and I want us to have a clean and prosperous future. Right. And one thing that I wanted you to address was a lot of people come to the defense of Joe Manchin because they make this case that, well, he, you know, West Virginia is a red state and he's being conservative just for practical reasons. But you actually have a very progressive platform. And Joe Manchin, I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, he's indistinguishable from Republicans. I'm not sure if you've heard, but there's a news story today about how he supports Trump's decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. So it's it's difficult for me to retort with an argument because I'm not from West Virginia. So why is it that you think that your platform, having a progressive platform, will resonate with the people of West Virginia? Well, we've had to vote between the lesser two evils. It's just like what happened with Donald Trump. Bernie Sanders won the primaries here because he was offering solutions. And then Donald Trump won because he was offering solutions, false promises. He was offering jobs which we've not seen happen here yet. I don't want to misquote, but I think maybe the employment rate in the mining industry is raised like 9%. And it's disgusting to me because not only did Joe Manchin put out a letter of support, but Shelley Moore Capito, our other senator, Evan Jenkins, um, my Republican opponent, um, Mike McKinley, all went out for support for the Paris Agreement. You know, people argue about climate change, and maybe that can be an argument, which I don't understand because I think that, you know, we, whether we believe it in or not, I think that we should pr- protect our envi- environment for our future and for our children. But with that, they've inhibited any type of green technology or any type of future, in, you know, to expand 
our infrastructure by doing that. So it's very telling that they're catering to their funders again and not catering to the people of West Virginia. And for you, you are the daughter of a coal miner, is that correct? Yes. So um, I come from a long line of coal miners. Um, coal miner's daughter, granddaughter, most of my uncles have been coal miners. Um, a lot of my family has. And you know, I've lived long enough, I'm 43 years old, I've lived long enough to watch the progression and regression of coal. I buried my dad when he was 54 years old. I watched my grandpa suffocate to death. I'm watching my uncles fight for their black lung and watching them be sick. My stepdad, um, open heart disease. Um, so that that's not a legacy I want to leave my children. And that's not a legacy that most West Virginians want to leave their children. But we've had no promise of any other type of economy here. So what is left for us except for feast or famine? You know, the coal industry's always been boomer bust. And we have had a large history of labor struggles with the coal industry. And we fought and won. But with this generation, with the the bust, I want to say the bust of our union because we really don't have a union anymore to protect our coal miners. Most of these boys have to go into non-union mines. They don't have no promise um, for a pension or health care in their future, which I think every West Virginian deserves health care, you know, because our children are having to breathe in silica dust. There's people in communities, higher levels, levels of cancer, asthma, birth defects, um, People now are getting the same illnesses that, you know, my family did. Um, and that's not fair. That's not fair to put that on our children's backs. You know, the Industrial Revolution was built on the backs of coal miners, their families, and surrounding communities. And I think it's time for us to unite. I think it's time for our awakening. Democratic or Republican, we all can agree. It's a, you know, that we need a prosperous diverse infrastructure here and we're not going to have it just as long as we have corporate corporate funded politicians i've said it before and i'm going to say it again it's past time for us to invest in ourselves it's time this nation was built by the people for the people and i think it's time for the people all people all over america but especially west virginia to rise up you know this nation is flood is fueled by the blood of my people we have died to power America. It's time, it's past time to create a future for our kids. I don't want my boys to leave. So part of your platform, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you want to take the coal workers and you want to create new green jobs, you know, in renewable technology um, in West Virginia. So that way, you know, you people who are coal workers, they do still have a job. You just want to make sure that they're not getting sick. So can you kind of talk about your plan with respect to that? How do you how do you move from getting off of coal? Do you think that climate change, you know, investing in green technology is the way to do it? What are your thoughts on that? I think that we can do it in several different ways. Um, we've been taught with, you know, we've been divided with propaganda and saying that, you know, green energy doesn't work. It's been proven that it can work here. But we can also manufacture solar panels and windmills here. 
um, we can expand and invest in small business. We can focus on new cash crops and build a sustainable energy economy. But we can also grow aerospace, automotive, biotech, and agriculture, and hemp. You know, mountaintop removal sites, you know, there's there's really not a lot you can do on those sites. They're really not fit for a rattlesnake. They reclaim them, but there's not a lot they can do. But there's one thing that can grow on a mountaintop removal site, and that is hemp. So I think that we need to expand our minds um, and put the money that's come out of here back into West Virginia and keep it in West Virginia. Um, that's what's happened is, you know, all this money's went out of here, but we are not seeing any kickbacks in our communities. And, you know, we have sacrificed and people have gotten sick and people have died. I don't think coal is going to end tomorrow, but we, it's been proven that the market is not going to rebound like it did. And I know that there's men in their 60s that's never going to know anything else besides coal mining. But, if, you know, I'm worried. Even if we start now with different infra infrastructure, we're, infrastructure, we're still going to suffer. Because last summer when the market was down, people went hungry. You know, we should have been thinking about this decades ago. Um, but we can start building it now. Right. So I, I want to talk about something that you stated. So you made a reference to health care and how all West Virginians made health care. So as you probably know, Bernie Sanders is going to be reintroducing a companion bill in the Senate to H.R. 676, which is basically a Medicare for all system. So if you are elected, would you support something like that so that way we can move towards a, Med a Medicare for all type system? Absolutely. I think as much as West Virginia sacrificed, I think we do deserve health care for everybody. And I think it's going to say, you know, even from a conservative aspect, you know, the middle class is talking about their deductibles being so high now. But if we expand um, our health care system and everybody has a fair an equal health care system, then, you know, we don't have as much to fuss about. You know, we're behind in this country like other countries. Um, I think that we deserve health care, and as sick as people are, so especially with the drug addiction here, we need health care. Um, you know, health care, better, better education, expanding our infrastructure, um, it all goes together. It's just going to build, you know, healthier communities, people are working. Um, you know, people have better access to education. You know, it's just going to build us up as a whole. Right. So one thing that I wanted to touch on, because you and other candidates from brand new Congress and Justice Democrats, you know, coming into each race, you are at a disadvantage because you're choosing not to take corporate money. Uh, whereas your opponents, you know, not just Joe Manchin, but, you know, corporate Democrats across the country, they're taking millions of dollars. So if you were elected, uh, and you know, you're definitely the underdog, but you have people hopefully from around the country trying to help with your campaign, sending $1, $2 here and there. But if you are elected into the Senate, what do you think would be the long-term solution? Um, are you in support of campaign finance reform, uh, public finance elections? How do you think we can basically end the influence of money in politics? Well, I think there definitely be, needs to be some legislation to get money out of politics because, you know, an ordinary person has no influence in, in our elections, and that's not fair. Um, and that's what we're doing with brand new Congress is giving people that ability. We don't need as much money as we need votes. And thank goodness to social networking now that we can expand our messaging. Um, you know, we're not as dependent on the money as, as the politicians are, you know, because they're, wor they're, they're worried about filling their pocketbooks. Now, we're worried about, you know, expanding their future. Um, so that's, that's the message that every American should come back and say to these politicians that's taking all this money. We don't need all their money. You know, we don't need corporations' money anymore. We want to invest in ourselves.
That's perfect. And Bernie Sanders basically proved that you can have a very successful campaign, you know, if you don't take corporate money or PAC money. So I think that, you know, that model is now being emulated by you, by Cori Bush, uh, by a lot of different people. And it's really inspiring to see. So let me ask you this, um, because you're you're a campaign that is powered by the people. I mean, you don't have any influence from corporate backers. So if you were to get into office, you know, there's a ton of issues right now. What do you think would be the top three issues that you would personally push for? Well, for West Virginia, for one, it, well, any every American expand our infrastructure, better education and health care. I think those are the key things that Americans are look for, looking for right now because, I mean, even though West Virginia's kind of set a model for, um, uh, you know, destruction and cultural divide, um, you know, that we're starting to see that happen all over America. And I think people are starting to be afraid because they know that, you know, it's coming to them, too, if it hasn't already. And, you know, water, that's one thing that I will fight for because that's a basic human right. There's no reason that people should be bid against each other to put food on their table and a basic human right is, you know, like water and clean air. Jim Justice, my Democratic governor, one of the biggest polluting coal barons in West Virginia, is putting silica dust in my kids' lungs and several children's lungs across Appalachia, and that's unacceptable. And I will fight for those issues, but I'll also fight for an economic infrastructure that is clean and stable for everybody. I mean, I, I don't understand. We're supposed to be one of the leaders in the world, and we are so far behind now just because we have such corruption in our government. And I think Republican or Democrat, everybody's starting to see that. And I think that it's time to build our revolution and fight back. You know, change is never, ever going to happen until we stop it. And it, ha it, sh it should have stopped, like I said, decades ago. But now is the time. We have to have a future for our children. I'm afraid for my children. I'm afraid for everybody's child in America right now. Right. Well, and every single thing that you're saying to me is it, it, it's excellent. It sounds great. So you definitely have my endorsement 100 uh, percent. I am I am thoroughly impressed by you. And I was hoping that I, I've been someone on my show who I've been very critical of Joe Manchin. And I was hoping that someone would step up and primary him. But it's not like we we just have any other primary challenger. We have a really phenomenally progressive person here. So I know that there's going to be a lot of people that want to reach out and help you. Where can we donate to your campaign? Are we able to phone bank for you or canvas for you? What can we do to make a difference for you? PaulaJean2018.com. Um, we do have volunteers that are starting to get everything together. So, we, you know, we are going to need people to canvas and phone bank, and we're going to start putting that out there. Um, yeah, and I think that's just go, that, what it's going to take. And so many people, it's been so positive. So many people wanted to support this campaign. And I've been so happy to see West Virginia respond like they did because when I come out with this, you know, my biggest message is conquer that divide because we have been so divided because of this propaganda and been so desperate. But it's been it's been positive, absolutely positive. And I'm so proud to see West Virginia unite. And I'm also so proud to see Americans unite like they have and get behind brand new Congress and candidates that are doing the same kind of thing and trying to build up their communities. And, yeah, this is going to happen. It's, you know, it's, we're just in the beginning. I'm really proud. We've already got $80,000 and it's been less than a month. Um, and we can't even take over $5,000 from an individual. So that's very telling. And that's just for my campaign. That's fantastic to hear. And I think that what you've managed to do, because 
I mean, you, your your information is online in terms of what you've done. There's videos of you challenging Joe Manchin, you know, at town halls. So you've kind of taken what would have been a campaign to defeat Joe Manchin, and you've turned it into a campaign about Paula Swearingen. Like, this is about West Virginia, and you've basically brought all the issues that people in West Virginia are experiencing, and you've brought that in, into focus for people like me. I'm on the West Coast, so I'm not familiar with the struggle of coal miners, for example. I don't know anyone who's a coal miner, so I think that what you're doing is it's phenomenal and the fact that your campaign is successful is great to me so is there anything else that you want to say before we end the interview any um anything else that you can um tell my viewers in terms of supporting you or where to find you on twitter and whatnot um paula jean 2018 on twitter but i also want to say this really isn't my campaign this is west virginia's campaign and i want to reach out to people in west virginia and people across america we do have four more congressional sheets seats in west virginia that could be filled by ordinary people in west virginia that's ready to be leaders and work in our government and make decisions that's going to be you know for the people here. Um, so if you know anybody that needs to be nominated to Brand New Congress, um, go to brandnewcongress.org. And even at, you know across America, because we're still looking for candidates. But I think especially West Virginia, you know, I'm not the only one, you know, I'm one of many. And I think that, you know, if somebody's ready, you know, step up and, you know, nominate somebody that you know, because I, this is this is our time. This is our time to fight back. Um, yeah, but just I thank everybody across America and West Virginia for what they're doing. I really do. I appreciate it so much. I'm, I've been really overwhelmed by all the support. Um, it's been amazing. And thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on. Um, hopefully you can come on again. And good luck because we, we are all rooting for you. You are, you are an inspiration. You are building a model for future generations who want to run for Congress. You know, you're, you're showing them that you don't have to be beholden to corporate interests. You can run a people-powered campaign and be successful. $80,000 based on grassroots donations is monumental, I think, especially, you know, when it comes to West Virginia because people, for, for the longest time, uh, in red states, th there's just this notion that it's a lost cause. You shouldn't, you know, even try to help the liberal or progressive candidate. And you're really, you're, you're turning things around and... For making this, you know, a campaign about the issues, I think that's great. So thank you so much, Paula. Thank you, too. Well, that's the end of the episode here. I want to thank you all for tuning in if you've made it this far in the episode. Uh, and I want to just thank you for watching every single week. You guys are great. We are approaching our 100th episode, which is just a huge milestone. Uh, so, yeah, I'm really excited. I don't know if I'm going to be doing anything special for that episode, but we will... Uh, We'll certainly see. If you have any recommendations, feel free to leave them down below. But anyways, uh, I'll see you guys next week. Have a great day.